Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the prophecy of Malachi. The prophecy of Malachi. Uh, if you know where the Gospel of Matthew is, you can turn to it and flip a few pages back over to the Old Testament, and there you have the prophecy of Malachi. We're going to be looking at the f- third chapter of Malachi and uh, roughly the first five verses. Now, as we come this evening to our final study of our Sunday evening series of these various passages that set forth what we have titled Shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, we have seen something of the panorama of redemptive history as it displays itself throughout the Old Testament scriptures and how throughout these various passages of the Old Testament, God has given us in diverse stages and to different degrees windows of revelation which have been pointing progressively and convergently to the one who declared of himself to those two disillusioned disciples walking alongside of him on the road to Emmaus when he said to them, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. For all of those Old Testament passages we've studied, they anticipated the coming of God-made flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his inauguration of the new covenant for the salvation of his people. And now in these verses before us this evening, in chapter 3, Malachi is contemplating by the eye of prophetic vision God's revelation to him of two messengers whom God will send, one to prepare the coming, the future arrival of yet another messenger whom he identifies as the messenger of the covenant who is none other, as we shall see, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look, beginning with verse 1 of Malachi chapter 3, and I'll be reading through verse 5. Hear the word of the true and living God. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord Sabaoth. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those 
who oppressed the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask the blessing of God upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. O Holy Father, as we bow before you in this particular portion of your word, not the easiest portion to expound, and we sense once again and feel our, our need for the help of your spirit, and we ask, O oh Father, that you would grant his gracious assistance, not simply to preacher, but to dear people alike. And help us all, Father, as we come under the influence of this passage, might know its input upon our own lives. Apply your word in ways beyond the preacher's ability. And do so, we plead. To the good of our souls, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Verses 1 through 5 of Malachi 3 is the answer to the question of the people in chapter 2 and verse 17. There they ask, where is the God of justice? And the answer of God through the mouth of his prophet Malachi is this. He is coming. The God of justice is coming. The prophecy of Malachi is probably the last book written in the Old Testament. And this prophecy is post-exilic, meaning that the Jews have already returned to the land from their exile in Babylon. And have been back home in their native land for almost 50 years at this time. Interestingly enough, the very name Malachi is the Hebrew word for messenger. It's also translated angel. Moreover, Calvin, in commenting upon this particular prophecy, he thought that the prophet here was none other than the man Ezra and that his surname was Malachi. But the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt now under the leadership of Nehemiah. That much is clear. And the second temple also has been reconstructed under the leadership of Zerubbabel on the very ruins of the old temple. And we know that according to the indications that we have from chapter 1 and verses 7 through 10, as well as verse 8 of chapter 3, that these passages imply that sacrifices were being offered in the temple from which we infer that the temple structure had been standing for some time. The temple had been rebuilt for some time. However, by the time of Malachi, somewhere around the year 500 B.C., perhaps later, the people and the priesthood, to put it mildly, were in a state of spiritual declension. They had polluted God's worship with their carelessness. They had engaged in mixed marriages with infidels. Polygamy was ripe. Abuses of divorce 
And they were also expressing blasphemous and hard thoughts against God and his providence. It seems as though that the people had returned from exile and the pagan influence there with the smelt and contagion of Babylon still clinging to them, having brought home with them the sins of that idolatrous society. In Malachi, he indicts them with this charge from God. In verse 11 of chapter 2, among many others, Judah has profaned, he says, the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. To be sure, Israel had returned home, but Israel had not yet returned to her God. The priesthood was corrupt. Their worship had been polluted. It was impure and dishonoring to God, as we learn from verse 6 of chapter 1 through verse 9 of chapter 2. The people were robbing God of his tithe. Verse 8 of chapter 3, social injustice was ripe in the land. But worst of all, worst of all, the priest who were leading the people, were leading them astray. They were God's present messengers of his word. But notice God's indictment upon them in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 2. And God addresses them directly through his mouthpiece Malachi. And he says, For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And I will make you despised and abused before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. You see, the primary task of the priest in the Old Testament was to teach the people the word of God. But they had turned aside from God's way and were leading God's people astray. It is something of an axiom. As go the priest, so go the people. Like priests, like people, the religious leaders of any age in the day of Malachi, in our day as well, exert a great deal of influence upon the people of God. And they can so easily lead people astray. And Malachi's oracle here against the priesthood underscores how forcefully negative their impact was having Upon the people. And so it is into this spiritually decadent situation, God raises up his final prophet in the person of Malachi. And as God's present messenger, he proclaims a fiery message from God to, uh, to the people of Jerusalem. Now, notice this is God's final message of the Old Testament centuries, centuries before the coming of Christ. And what is the message of Malachi to these people? How does 
Malachi addressed these people on this the eve, as it were, of what was to be followed by some 400 years or so of prophetic silence. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. Speaking through Malachi, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth. Now notice, first of all, from verse 1, the messenger who prepares the way of Yahweh. God declares through his messenger Malachi that he will send another messenger, and that messenger will prepare the way of the Lord. Now you may know that in ancient days when there was a royal procession, that the king would send before him messengers. He would send them ahead of his entourage to clear the way, to remove every impediment that might block him, and to announce the coming of the king, to move aside all traffic so that the king would have a clear path, a clear, unobstructed passage. Now, those of us who are familiar with the New Testament know that this messenger is identified by the Lord Jesus as John the Baptist in the parallel passages of Matthew chapter 11 and Luke chapter 7. And in both of those gospel passages, the Lord Jesus cites a portion of Malachi 3 in verse 1. This is, and he says of John, this is he of whom he wrote. This is he of whom it is written. In other words, this is the one, John the Baptist is the one of whom Malachi prophesied to prepare the way. And Jesus asked the crowd, you may recall, concerning John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before him. Therefore, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 is a prophecy, first of all, about the coming of John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord. He is the one who will prepare the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one going ahead to say, the king is coming. Now to be sure, this prophecy in Malachi 3 and verse 1 parallels the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 where we read, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the, in the desert a pathway or a highway for our God. And Matthew in his gospel, in the third chapter, he cites that prophecy of Isaiah 
and offers his own editorial comment. And here it is. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of hand is or the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Therefore, by using the analogy of Scripture, that is interpreting Scripture by Scripture, we see that these prophecies of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 are cited by our Lord Jesus Christ as referencing none other than John the Baptist. John is the messenger sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was called of God to be the forerunner, the precursor, the harbinger, the envoy, if you please, of the coming king. And he speaks in the name and the authority of the king. Now please follow me closely. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the appearance of John is a watershed moment in the history of redemption. They make it clear. This is a turning point of God's dealings with mankind. According to Luke 16 and verse 16, we have a further explanation as to how our Lord Jesus regarded the ministry of John. This is what he says. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Do you see what our Lord Jesus is saying there? He's saying since the time of John, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. The law as a dispensation or economy or as a period in the history of redemption, it comes to a transition point with the appearance of John on the scene. And this is the same point I think that Peter makes in his sermon in Acts chapter 10 and verses 36 through 37, where he's preaching there to the household of Cornelius. And he says, this word, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, had its beginning with John, he says, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And in the course of redemptive history, John, who in a sense was the last of the Old Testament prophets, he appears on the scene in the wilderness of Judea, dressed in Elijah-like apparel. And what is his message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And he begins to preach. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit 
is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then we learn from the Gospel of John chapter 1 verses 29 through 31. The next day what happens? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, he points all those around him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, John says, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John's own language points to him, does it not, as the messenger of the coming of the Lord. Thus he prepares the way for Jesus. It's as though this meteor-like man, John the Baptist, arrives on the scene in the gospel records in a blaze of glory, as it were, after falling from the heavens. And from then on begins to fade out. Because his task as Malachi's messenger to prepare the way of the Lord has been accomplished. And as John himself expressed his role with respect to Christ, he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. With other prophets, none greater than John according to Jesus. And so John fulfills as well the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, as part of his preparatory work, where we read there in Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction or strike it with a curse. For Jesus himself declares in Matthew 11 and verses 13 through 14, for all the law and the prophets, for the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if, if you're willing, Jesus said, this is Elijah who is to come, speaking of the Baptist. As one commentator has expressed it regarding the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, he said, the meaning is therefore that John will bring the present rebellious generation into religious harmony with the upright ones of former times. So clearly, 
John the Baptist is identified as the first messenger of Malachi 3 and verse 1. Sent from God in advance of Christ to prepare the way of God and of his only begotten son. Sent to call the people to, to a change of heart and of life. So that they might be eager and ready to receive Jesus and obey him. As their promised Messiah. I want to offer just a brief comment as an aside in passing. Why did Jesus say in Matthew 11 and verse 11. As well as in the parallel passage of Luke chapter 7. Truly I say to you among those born of women. There is arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Yet Jesus goes on to say yet. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How are we to understand that comment of our Lord? Well, consider this. John was the last envoy of the old covenant. He was nearest to Christ and thus the most important of all. Nonetheless... He assumes a lower place than even the most insignificant member of the new covenant. Why is that? And I think that it's because John belonged to the period of preparation and had not yet come to know Christ as the crucified one, as the risen redeemer, as the one who in his spirit, makes his habitation in the believer's heart and life. And I think that's why the least member is, is in the position of which Jesus speaks. But then notice with me, secondly, the one whom Malachi describes as the messenger of the covenant. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, or Adam, Adonai, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger, or the angel of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. <coughs> so then, following the preparation of the messenger, the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. Now, it's not the people's temple, it's not the priest's temple, but it is the Lord's temple. And he's coming to where God dwells with his people. Now, we know this from the Old Testament scriptures, and particularly, though not exclusively at all, in the Psalms. They recount this time and time again. Psalm 5 and verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, the psalmist sings to the Lord. And then in the 11th Psalm, the Lord is in his holy temple. The 68th Psalm, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. The 138th Psalm, I will bow down toward your holy temple. So, and the use of this word suddenly... Uh, in the Hebrew here, it's not to be understood as arriving near or close to the time of Malachi, but rather that his coming would be suddenly, it would be 
instantly or unexpected in the circumstances within which it would take place. That is, his coming coming would immediately follow on the heels of his forerunner. For we read in the Gospel of Mark, in those days when John was baptizing, John had arrived on the scene. He had been preparing the way of the one to come. When John was baptizing, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And as the messenger of the covenant himself, what is the message of Jesus? Well, he echoes the message of the Baptist. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, has drawn near. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God draws near in the person of the king. This messenger of the covenant who is none other than the Lord. And who better to declare the message of the covenant than the one whom the New Testament reveals as the mediator of the new covenant. For the writer to the Hebrews argues, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Now then, I think it's good for all of us, and I'd like to talk about in the remainder of our time, what we mean by the word covenant. And there are some other issues in this passage. I just don't think I'm going to have time to cover them. But let's understand what a covenant bereft is. What does the word covenant mean? Well, let me state, first of all, what it surely and unequivocally does not mean. Covenant, biblically speaking, does not mean, or, or, or it means in terms of God, a relationship. That's what covenant is emphasizing. It's emphasizing a relationship of God to his people. Covenant is not a contract. Now, I know that some of the Puritans can speak of it as such, but it's really not a contract. If we want to understand what a covenant is essentially, then we need to think first and foremost and almost uniquely and alone in relational terms. Covenant means a relation. It is profoundly a relational concept and a relational word. And here in the prophecy of Malachi, you find that underscored in chapter 2 in verse 14. Where marriage is spoken of there as what? As a covenant. It's a relationship. And you have there, I think, a very helpful uh, illustration or at least an introduction 
as to what the heart of this very profoundly significant biblical concept, covenant, means. It is a relationship. It is a very intimate, profound relationship. A covenant is a relationship between two parties. It's a relationship with vows and with promises. It's a relationship with responsibilities. Now, of course, no mere human covenant or illustration as such can begin to convey to us the breadth and the depth of the divine covenant. And so we would want to add to these things I've mentioned that God's covenant is also a relationship, not just between two parties with promises and responsibilities, but also with prescribed penalties attached to it. Not only on the human side, but on the divine side, God's as well. You may recall that passage of which we read in Genesis 15 with respect to God's covenant with Abram. And we see there in that passage how this is brought out quite dramatically in Genesis 15. You remember perhaps that God puts Abram into a deep sleep and the carcasses of the animals are divided. And God, as it were, passes through or between the divided carcasses or the pieces of the carcasses. God is establishing there his covenant with Abram. God passes between the pieces of the carcasses. And you think, what on earth is going on there? Well, God is signifying thereby that he is taking upon himself an oath. He is making a malediction about himself. He is saying to Abraham, So may it be thus to me, if I keep not my promises to you. May it be thus and so to me, if I keep not my promises to you. Let God be dismembered, God is saying. If I keep not my oath, bound, pledged, promised to you, Abram, and to your seed after you. And of this event, we read in verse 18 of Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made, or literally cut, karat, cut a covenant with Abram. The dividing of the animals together with the act of passing between the pieces of their carcasses results in the making, again, literally, the cutting of a covenant. And by dividing these animals and passing between the pieces, participants in the covenant pledge themselves to life and to death. These actions established an oath of malediction. If either party should break the commitment involved in the covenant, then they were asking that their bodies be torn in pieces, just as the animals had been divided ceremonially. But strikingly, in this covenant, you'll notice, Abram does not pass, he does not himself pass between the pieces. God alone passes between the pieces of the carcasses, 
thereby binding himself unilaterally to man the creature by a solemn blood oath in the covenantal relationship. And by this action, the Lord assumes to himself the full responsibility for seeing that every promise of the covenant shall be realized. And in the fullness of time, God is manifested in the flesh. He has taken to himself a true body and graciously consents in the language of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, in a sacrifice and offering, you, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, or the writer to the Hebrews says, a body prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book to do what, what is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law, he says, is within my heart. And God's messenger of the covenant becomes God's mediator of the covenant. And he offers his own body and his own blood as the victim of the covenantal curses. His flesh is ripped open on Calvary so that God's promise to the patriarch Abram and his seed might be fulfilled. Now time does not permit me to address all the aspects of this passage as I would desire, particularly the day of the messenger's coming, his work as a refining fire, like a fuller's soap and a purifier's soap. I, I do not have time to speak to any of that, but I leave you with this. The covenant of works, sometimes referenced in the Westminster Standards as the covenant of life, the covenant of works made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, that covenant was made without a priest. Why? Why was it made without a priest? It's because the parties represented in that covenant were without sin. There was no sin involved when God made the covenant of works with Adam. But in the covenant of grace, whom God's, whom God's messenger of the covenant announces, is a covenant of peace offered between God and sinners. And therefore, that breach, that covenant violation could only be repaired by the intervention of a priest who in himself could repair the injury done before an all-holy God to take away sin. Hence the words of the prophet Zechariah 6 verse 13. He shall be a priest on his throne. Christ has become both priest and victim, both offerer and offering in our room instead, for he alone is holy harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. In him is opened a fountain for sin and uncleanness for all who will simply close with him in repentance and faith. If you happen to be here tonight and you're an unbeliever, I would encourage you to close with Christ. 
to come to him, turn from your sins, and look to the Savior alone. And then if you're here tonight as a believer, and I close with this for us. And this is something I think, and I like to repeat it often. I think we always need to remember that what the Lord Jesus is to any of us in our initial coming to him, he remains in the ongoing reality of our Christian experience. He is our priest. He is our high priest. And when we find ourselves in the smelt and contagion of sin, then we are to run to him as the purifier of silver, the purifier of his people, to be washed in his blood. I like that story in Bunyan's, uh, it's that one, it's, it's in Holy War. It wasn't, wasn't in uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, but in the Holy War, um, he's, he's, there's someone there and he's addressing the people. He says, where do you think Prince Emmanuel is? Where is Prince Emmanuel? He's talking about he's withdrawn from the city to the inhabitants of, of the city of Mansoul. He says, where is he? Where is he gone? And uh, Colonel Security, Mr. Colonel Security says, why are you worried about that? He's not here. No need to worry about him. And this godly man, Mr. Godfear, his name was Mr. Godly Fear. He looks at Mr. Colonel Security and says, You, sir, are the man who has driven him away. It's good for us to go continually to Prince Emmanuel and to find our sins confessed and washed in his blood. Let's pray.